Hey, Don. Hello, Zach. This week, we've brought our very special friends and guests back. We have high school and sometimes college government teachers, Tom Romito and Kevin Kopeck, and they are here to break down all of the reactions from the recent election. But I'd like to start with the best paragraph I read, which comes from Politico. The headline, the 2022 election was almost normal. And here's the best paragraph I read. You got a better theory? Have at it. Maybe the evidence emerging over coming hours and days will illuminate new possibilities. For now, though, it's worth reflecting that election night surprises and even murky, inconclusive results are themselves a vindication of democratic culture. Operatives, journalists, the politicians themselves, they are all frauds when they profess with any confidence that they know what's going to happen. Here was a confusing result that suggests a country searching for a new normal after years of bizarre upheavals. That is politics working the way it's supposed to. And Don, Kevin, Tom, after looking at the results here, some of them are still out there being counted. What is the thing that catches your attention the most? The defying of expectations. Nobody can predict anything. And that's the thing that seems to be the new normal. And I kept thinking that as I read the article that, yes, things are normal-ish, but the normal seems to be we can't predict what's going to happen. And I've been reading for a while about how there was going to be this giant red wave and then it didn't materialize. And once again, the pollsters were wrong. And maybe that is the new normal. I think this conclusion that it was normal or that we're seeking normalcy is interesting because in a lot of ways, the results were not at all normal, at least in terms of what people predicted. We talked last time, two years ago on this, about how even with this big Biden victory and Democratic majorities, that it was probably going to be temporary. And two years from now, they would likely lose quite a few seats. And even a week ago, everybody thought that was still going to be true. So in terms of historical normalcy, this was definitely not that. But these inconclusive results, it's only inconclusive if you're looking for elections to create a clear mandate. We have a very divided country. And so a close election to me, isn't much of a surprise. It might be difficult to say, okay, where do we go from here? But having various people in various parties win various elections does seem pretty normal, even though this wasn't normal compared to historical expectations. I would say to add to what Tom said, I think the election shows maybe a little bit of an, a rejection of extremism. And I don't think we should be surprised by that. You know, running candidates that are on the extreme end of one part of a political spectrum probably won't result in a ton of victories for that spectrum or for that end of the spectrum. I think there were some states, obviously, where in this case, Trump backed candidates did have success, you know, Florida and Ohio being a couple of the higher profile ones. But there were many, many Trump backed candidates in uh, states that are considered swing states or, or purple states, whatever you want to call them, that did not have that level of success. And I wasn't surprised by that. I, I don't think the, the country should be surprised by that. I think if you have candidates that are on the more extreme end of the political spectrum, that you might have some victories, but you shouldn't see a massive wave of victory. Do you think that like this election was a reminder that the majority of America doesn't watch cable news the majority of America doesn't hang out on Twitter and in these crazy social media rooms. And therefore, the majority of Americans 
still will split their ballots and they will still go and vote for candidates that they think are the most reasonable for the, you know, the, the things that they want. Because I feel like maybe over the last couple of years, this polarization that we talk about is existing in places that isn't where the majority of Americans are living. And therefore, we all think there's going to be a big red wave or we all think that everybody's going to go vote blue for this. And yet, ultimately, what it looks like is the American people are still complex. The American people still have a diverse range of needs, and therefore they go out and they vote. And then people just seem to act surprised when elections just sort of kind of move to the left, move to the right. And that's kind of how we've always been, though, isn't it? There's a couple things that that makes me think about. One, it's funny that you mentioned split ticket voting, because that's one of the phenomena that the political science have really seen has been on the decline recently. We talk about how in the 70s and 80s, as national parties became kind of weaker, voters were more likely to split their ticket. And most recent conversation is all about extreme polarization. And a lot of political scientists that I've been listening to are like, nobody splits their ticket anymore. Everything is nationalized. And the old adage about all politics is local doesn't exist anymore. And these results seem to really question that. And there obviously were some more split ticket voting than we've seen in the last few years. Um, so maybe that's coming sort of back to a norm, a new normal. Another thing that I've been reading a lot about is thermostatic politics, which is just a fancy way of talking about like the pendulum swinging back and forth and how elections are really just a reaction or sort of a correction from the last one. But this wasn't really that. So this this rise of thermostatic politics, the nationalization of parties, the decline of split ticket voting, at least this week, those weren't quite as pronounced as as most people thought they would be. I also think, too, that uh, candidates matter. And that phrase has been talked about a lot on the cable news networks here and amongst elected officials right now when they're surveying the political landscape. Uh, an excellent explanation for the split ticket voting would be you look at a state like Georgia, where the incumbent Republican governor did very well, better than he did four years ago against the same opponent. Yet uh, his Republican Senate counterpart, Herschel Walker, is going to be in this runoff election and didn't get as many votes as uh, his Democratic opponent. And where's the drop off there? Well, the best explanation for that is going to be that the candidate choice matters. The Georgia voters knew their governor, had their governor for four years. In that case, it was a probably a referendum on the job performance of the governor, which well over a majority of Georgia voters felt like they were doing a good job. And then they had this relatively unknown Senate candidate who's best known for his his long ago football career and otherwise being a you know Trump supported politician. And clearly the voters in Georgia weren't ready to just say, I'm going to vote all one party. I'm going to vote all Republican across the board. They wanted to weigh experience and what they saw from a candidate, uh, and they clearly didn't give the same level of thought or or vote to the person that was inexperienced and they didn't know enough about. Tom, and, Kevin, do we know who a split ticket voter is likely to be? Is it likely to be male or female or younger or older, or do, do we know anything about that? I think that they are more likely to be younger. And that's I was just reading something yesterday that was addressing this split ticket phenomenon and indicating, you know, based on early exit polls, which are still coming in, that younger voters are more likely to split tickets, which sort of goes along with the research that, you know, as voters get older, their 
party identification becomes more calcified and more difficult to change. But these younger voters, which which turned out in large numbers, larger than usual and higher percentages than usual, maybe they're they're the next wave of a new rise in split ticket voting. I also want to say something else about Georgia that kind of builds on what Kevin and what Zach was saying. There was a a clip that went around that was really frustrating to people. I, I think it was Dana Lash, who used to be an NRA spokesperson, but it was in the context of how could anybody be voting for Herschel Walker? And she was like, I don't care who this guy is. I don't care what he did. I want to win. We need 51 votes. And I think a lot of people saw that and were disturbed by that, but sort of thought that's what Republicans are now, or, or you know, that's what the national party is. They just want a warm body that's going to raise their hand and vote yay on Republican priorities. But clearly that it wasn't quite that extreme because the race was much closer and people that were voting for Kemp at the top of the ticket didn't vote for Walker. But so that gets to people see that on social media or that on, on Fox News, but that's not completely representative of the voters for sure. And maybe it's overstated. And so maybe all of that type of attitude was overstated, which is why the results were different. And wouldn't they expect that to be the case? Because the, didn't we just uh, pick up Tommy Tuberville, the uh, Alabama Republican who's a football coach and has never been a politician? Wouldn't the Republicans expect like, hey, we'll throw another football guy at it. Maybe that'll work. Sure. And I think having that name recognition, right? Herschel Walker, it's not like he even needs to advertise a whole lot in the state of Georgia, given his background and his history. And I think maybe the big mistake that could have been made in that regard was simply just having a recognizable name and trying to associate that name with a brand like the the, the Republican Trump brand, if you will, um, would be enough to get across the finish line in, in the general election without needing a runoff. And clearly that wasn't the case. And uh, if anything, I think that shows really the, the competitive nature of what I think a lot of these Georgia political elections are going to be like for the next several years, but also the idea of experience and, and, and understanding of a candidate just because you know their name, just because they, they uh, are connected to President Trump doesn't mean that they're going to guarantee votes across the board from your party. And I think that is a win for, you know, voters itself in the sense that maybe we can give voters more credit for being a little more disciplined, a little more educated and a little more thoughtful at the election booth than just simply, I know that guy, I know the party, I'll vote for them. At the same time, you know, a few more votes one way or the other, and we'd be having a completely diff different conversation saying, oh, my gosh, Florida voters chose this empty suit uh, for no reason other than to give their party a win. So before we get too far at the voters aren't crazy, look at how many people voted for Herschel Walker as opposed to the the Democratic candidate who, you know, I think by all accounts is a you know competent, decent person. And it was close. It's going to a runoff. So I don't know that everybody's sane. Well, how much of this whole election should we consider that the issue of abortion was on a lot of proposals within the states in terms of the populations having to figure that out? Do you think you had a lot of pro-choice motivated voters that showed up? And let's say or pretend that maybe the Supreme Court doesn't weigh in on that issue last spring. Do you think this election is a red wave? And have you guys seen anything about maybe how much that really played into maybe how some of these results turned out? 
I think uh, the abortion issue, just from what I have read and seen so far, was absolutely a factor in, in if you want to call it preventing a red wave. From, from, from the information that has been shown so far, it was the second most important issue on voters' minds in this election. Clearly influenced younger people, clearly influenced female voters. And in states like Michigan, for example, being on the ballot, having that proposal on the ballot on a woman's right to choose was a driving factor in higher than expected turnout. So definitely it played a significant role. And I I, I have a hard time saying that if, if the Dobbs decision in the summertime, which overturned Roe versus Wade, doesn't happen, would we have seen the same type of voter response and the the, the delaying of a red wave, if you will, take place. I, I feel like if nothing had happened on the abortion issue and things remain status quo, then the inflation and economic issues would have dominated the political cycle more than they did already. And I don't want to say that means a red wave, but I think the numbers would be much different than what we're seeing in a lot of these states. I would tend to agree with that. The you know the economic indicators, the low approval of President Biden, you know, those are the things that would easily predict big victories for Republicans. And the fact that that didn't materialize, well, we have to say, okay, well, what was it then? The fact that young voters were energized, the fact that they came out, also the fact that there were a number of ballot initiatives where just reproductive rights was was on the ballot by itself, you know, brought out people that felt strongly about that. And then maybe just sort of incidentally also voted uh, for the, you know, the top of the ticket. So red wave or at the very least, maybe slightly more Republican victories, I, I do think it would have been different without that. Well, I think about our state of Michigan, and for the first time in 40 years, we now have the House and the Senate are Democratic and the governor. Is that because of, again, reproductive rights being on the ballot? Or do you also think that has something to do with the fact that our state now has an independent redistricting committee? And is there a way to sort of read that? Because it seemed very surprising that the whole state government went blue. It just didn't seem like anybody was making that prediction at all when the election started. You make a really good point about the the redistricting committee and, and the role that gerrymandering has played, because you have to take into consideration for any state the way that their congressional boundaries are drawn, who's drawing them, and the impact that can have on control of a of a statewide House or Senate. And the fact that the Republicans have had control of our state legislature in Michigan for many years and have been able until 2020 to draw the boundaries for state and federal congressional districts with, with their party interests in mind clearly has played a role in their ability to dominate the state level of politics at, at, at the legislative branch for many, many years. And I do think that it's a combination of factors in Michigan's case. The drawing of the districts absolutely helped let there be no doubt about it. And if the goal in this whole process was to be as fair as you can try to be and eliminate partisan gerrymandering uh, as much as possible, you have to give credit to the drawers of the districts because we're going to, at least at the U.S. House level, we're going to walk out in Michigan here with seven Democrats and six Republicans and two or three districts that were very close and competitive when it came down to it. And that's about as 13 districts. That's about as fair as you can get. At the state level, I would imagine you'll have even more competitive districts going forward in future elections, and it might have been the abortion ballot proposal and motivated young voters 
that gave a little extra boost on top of those redistrict areas to Democrats to allow them to have that success. I'm really looking forward to seeing some of the analysis over the next few weeks about Michigan and looking closely at the at the new districts. I think it's useful to compare to Wisconsin because Wisconsin's a state that is often cited as evidence of the nefarious effects of partisan gerrymandering because they have statewide, you know, a, a majority of Democratic voters. Um, it's not overwhelming, but at the same time, the way that the Republican legislature has drawn the districts, Republicans have pretty much an overwhelming majority in the state legislature. And so you look at graphs showing percentage of population and then percentage of seats, and it's very pronounced. And so Michigan went a different direction with the independent commission. And at least in part, that that played a role in the uh, the legislature now being more reflective of the population. Now, it's an open question as to whether it needs to be that way when drawing districts. Like, is that always the goal or should there be some sort of partisan advantage for the party that wins the most seats. But at the same time in Wisconsin, a Republican won statewide race. So the the, the districting is certainly part of it. How much it is, I, I'm hoping that there's some smarter people than me doing analysis over the next few weeks. Can, can you guys confirm, it was a couple of elections ago that Michiganders approved the idea of an independent election commission, am I correct? Yeah, this was the first election cycle with districts drawn by the commission. Do you think this could become a model for other states to follow that maybe feel like, hey, we're being gerrymandered out. We can't you know, really represent what our population is. All we got to do is get a proposal on the ballot and see if we can get that approved. Do you think this becomes maybe a, a, a strategy that other states start to follow? I think it it could be a strategy other states follow. There are other states that are doing this. Michigan's certainly not the first to use an independent commission. It's just not super common yet. And I think maybe Democratic interest groups should be given some credit in this state right now, because when you don't have control of the state government and the legislative branch, like the Democrats have not for many years, the nice thing about having the initiative process and the ballot proposal process in a state is that you can circumvent your legislature and get around it. And when you think about several of the most recent ballot proposals that have gotten kind of pushed through in the state of Michigan, it, it was essentially started and pushed forward by more democratic or, or liberal leaning interests. And I, I say that in, in a sense as a compliment, because that's the best check they kind of have on the state government and the state legislature is to say, OK, if we want to see you know, the end of Republican dominance in the state government, we have to do something about gerrymandering. Can we get this on a ballot and can we convince voters to approve it? If we don't want our state to go back to the 1930 law that bans abortion, can we get that on the ballot right away while it's fresh in voters' minds, get the signatures we need and get it approved? Uh, can we make some of the changes to election rules and voter ID laws that were passed in Proposal 2 in Michigan and make it easier for people to vote so we don't see the kind of restrictions on voting access that other states are doing? They push that forward and get that approved. So uh, I don't want to make it sound like every ballot proposal in the last decade has been from a Democratic group because that's not true. But there have been a lot of them, and they've been a good way to sort of counterbalance, if you will, the effects of a Republican-dominated legislature. Well, it's interesting because you see statewide like for senate you, like a, a state like michigan had has had two democratic senators for quite a while you know the governorship seems to flip back and forth between both parties 
it's sort of an interesting, I guess, strategy to try to say, look, I think the the you know the belief of our collective people is maybe different than how gerrymandered districts represent things. I just wonder if if Michigan becomes the latest poster child for whichever party is maybe out of power in their state to say, hey, maybe we should have independent commissions because maybe this evens the playing field. I think the problem for a lot of other states, though, like Kevin was saying, is not all states have the ballot initiative. So in most states, in order to change the system, you require the people who are currently in power to want to propose a change that's going to threaten their own power. And okay, you know, that's we always we talk about how you know redistricting is a political issue because it's done by elected officials and if you want redistricting to be done different then elect different legislators. But if the districts are already gerrymandered that makes it hard to elect change agents who are willing to change the system. In Michigan we put it to the voters, but most states don't have that. So I think the the prospects might be slim because you're really asking people that are in power to change the system to possibly force them out of power. Well, you had, you know, the Democrats in the last week before the election, Obama was out there, President Biden was out there. And as always, they were always making the claims, this is the most important election of our lives. But for the first time ever, we saw major national candidates sort of saying that democracy itself, it was on the line. You know, I'm not sure if that got a lot of people out But this morning, Barron's had a very interesting paragraph where they sort of talked about, you know, what does this election mean? And part of it was about maybe the quote unquote big lie. And I just wanted to read you this paragraph. They wrote, the election might also mark the end of the big lie. Donald Trump's claim that the 2020 election was stolen by Joe Biden despite no evidence. While many election deniers kept their seats in the House and a few new ones even won, many lost races that were very winnable. Pennsylvania saw both the governorship and the Senate go to Democrats over Trump-backed candidates, despite flaws that should have made them beatable. What's more, most of the candidates who ran on election denial have gone quietly without the lawsuits and claims of fraud that might have followed their poor showings. Are you guys surprised by this, that there hasn't seemed to have been a lot of red flags waved through the media People have just sort of conceded elections and people have won. And are you surprised by this? I'm not because it's just basically these candidates jumping on board with one really weird guy, and that is Donald Trump. And the condition of getting on his endorsement list was to deny that he lost the election because he can't accept losses. And so, yeah, they jumped on that bandwagon. Then they mostly distanced themselves once they got his endorsement and got past primaries. But yeah, they're they're not normal. They're normal people. They're not this one weird guy. When we started out talking about normalcy, you know, I think one of the big takeaways about this election is that the losers are conceding, which shouldn't be notable. But we had this sort of four-year time period where conceding elections was was not the norm, and. I think a lot of people thought that was going to continue. And the fact that it didn't, that that I haven't heard anything about like any legitimate challenges or even illegitimate challenges, but nobody really digging in their heels saying this election was fraudulent. So I think that, you know, that losers conceding and kind of returning back to this given of the peaceful transfer of power, that might be the biggest takeaway from this whole thing. No, I would agree with Tom. And I, I think that 
it, it's nice to see sort of that return to normalcy and, and the, the concession phone call and the the, the statements saying that you know that that they, they want to recognize a a, a a race well run between two two candidates. I think that's important, and I do agree also with Don in the sense that I think a lot of this was was driven by the kind of ideology of a particular person. And in order to get the backing of that person, you had to essentially kiss the ring and 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 follow the protocols uh, to a certain extent. But that doesn't mean you have to go down crying to the media or, or, or flailing around aimlessly as the, that, that votes were somehow stolen. This election was probably monitored and watched more closely by more people from both parties than any prior election. And... It's kind of hard to dispute things when uh, maybe more than any point in American history, we are paying very, very careful attention to the counting of ballots and the processing of ballots than ever before. I think we should all thank the uh, Brazilian former president, Bolasarno, who uh, stepped down. They're showing us the way about how to do democracy. Thank you, Brazil. <laughs> I think you... everyone have pred would have predicted we should take our cues from Brazil. Do you think, though, too... I felt like this was the first time that I can remember where we didn't get all the results within like two hours of polls closing and people seemed okay going to bed and then waking up the next day and saying, oh, I guess they're still counting ballots. We're still waiting. I, I just last night, they finally called one of the Senate races out in Arizona and Americans strangely seem to maybe have a little more patience to just wait and let things get counted properly. Would you say that that's kind of an accurate statement? I'm not sure because okay. it took a lot of I feel like there was a lot of coaching of people this particular election to say, OK, we're not going to know right away. We're not going to know right away. Historically, we need to have those those results on election night. So maybe we're, we're moving in the right direction. But I, I don't think that that's sort of the default mode. I think partly people may have sort of picked up on this idea that if you create a narrative that, oh, the later results are only going to vote Democrat and that's going to be evidence of fraud, then, you know, then say, well, we don't want to let that happen. So let's be patient. But I think it really it took a lot of massaging to get people comfortable with not immediate results. M maybe that will be the new normal. And everybody like, hey, it takes a few days. Everybody relax. Um, but isn't that a good thing, though? Well, I think it is. Um, although I have seen a, a, some stuff on social media the last few days saying, how is it that here we are four days after the election and we still don't have results? What's going out? What's going on in the Western states? But, at, you know, so somewhere between a couple days and a couple weeks, I think might be a comfort zone that people are willing to say, OK, I, I don't need to know on Tuesday night, but, you know, maybe Wednesday or Thursday. But beyond that, come on, where are we here? And, and part of this, too, is, you know. Most voters don't understand the intricacies of some states' voting tabulations. You know, Arizona's pretty unique and detailed in how they do their work. In fact, I was watching something on one of the cable news channels on Thursday. They had an interview with the head of Maricopa County's election board. And, you know, this is the county in Phoenix, where in the suburbs of Phoenix, which is the most populated county. And he was trying to make it very clear that they aren't stalling and they're not delaying the vote totals. You know, the law in Arizona says that people who get an absentee ballot can turn that ballot in up through the day of the election. They can drop it off in a ballot box in Maricopa County. And they had 290,000 or something like that ballots dropped off on Election Day. And because those people didn't vote in person, 
the workers in, in that county have to now go and look at each ballot and the envelope on the ballot to make sure that the dates are valid and that the signature is valid before they open it to count it. And you think about doing that 290,000 times with a handful of election workers who are you know, working extra days and extra shifts, that just takes time. And a lot of voters, I just don't think, understand from state to state how they collect and tabulate ballots is going to be a little bit different. And especially in these super competitive states where in the last two years, they've probably passed some state laws to make the counting of votes and in, in, in ballots very, very particular so that they're not, you know, uh, opening themselves up to lawsuits and challenges like we saw right after 2020. That's going to mean it's going to take some time in, in, in very competitive states. But in some ways, that to me seems like the win for democracy is that, you know, 2020 was so contentious. Lots of people came out to vote for both sides. But here we are a couple of years later and people seem a little more patient. And as you're saying, Kevin, like a lot more educated about how votes get counted. It makes me go back to like Gore versus Bush when we were in Florida and we were learning about like people with like paper punchers and the hanging chads. And nobody had ever understood how votes were counted besides like an election official. And maybe that's part of the process of, again, having a nice, healthy democracy that can be a little more patient. I think so. And I think that, you know, the more I kind of just think about this, I, I, I feel like we shouldn't be shocked that we're still waiting. Right. We are a divided country. That's clear. We had a 50-50 Senate. We went in with a divided Senate um, and, and a House that, while favoring Democrats the last two years, it wasn't overwhelming. So there's going to be some changes during these midterms, but there shouldn't have been this sort of radical change necessarily coming our way where we would know on election night that now the Senate all of a sudden is 55-45 or some some easy to kind of, you know, call it. If, we, if that were the case, we would obviously not have had the last three days of discussion in the political news cycle about the, the you know, the, the way that votes are counted in states that are competitive, et cetera. So... I do think that it's good that voters pay attention to the details of elections. You want to trust your vote more than anything else. You want to feel like when you cast that vote, it is secure, that there isn't the risk of fraud, and that the people who we, we you know entrust with handling all these important ballots know what they're doing and they follow the right process. I think it's definitely a, a net good that more people are participating, that there's more ways to vote, that we're okay with the idea that it's going to take longer uh, to count ballots. One thing that maybe doesn't get talked about as much is just how differently voting works these days. I mean, I remember earlier in my career doing activities with kids saying, OK, if we wanted if we wanted to increase voter turnout, what are some things that we could do? And these were all like hypothetical things, voting over multiple days, voting by mail. All these things, the one that always comes up is voting online, which still seems to be sort of a pipe dream. But so many of the things that were hypothetical scenarios as a way to maybe increase voter turnout, we do them all now. And it has become so much easier to vote. Um, and that that has led to increased turnout. There are also concerns about voter integrity and uh, the time to count the ballots. But just the process of voting is so much different now than it was even 10 years ago that kind of interested in, in how that affects the results one way or the other. And I think for the most part, we've seen more people are participating and it, it doesn't inherently favor one party or another, but it gets more people involved and certainly is easier to vote. 
Tom, you mentioned sort of students in, in classroom. And one question I had for all three of you guys, because you guys all teach at the high school level. Tom, you're also teaching at the college level. Over the last year or two in government class and even econ class, Don, have students brought up the idea of voting irregularities or rigged elections? Has that been a question that you guys have had to talk about or address in your class from maybe students that are watching the national headlines? And my other question then is like, how do you talk about that kind of an issue? Like that is not really in a traditional government textbook as, as a, a topic to be discussed, I don't think. Well, I would say the short answer is no. Um, I haven't gotten this vibe from students at any level that they're genuinely concerned about the mechanics of elections. Um, when I started uh, this course that I'm teaching at Oakland University this year, I was you know, talking to a lot of other professors and reading a lot, and that some of them were, were expressed this concern that if you have an introduction to government class and kids don't leave with some genuine concern for the state of democracy, then you're not just not doing your job. And I don't know that, <clears throat> that I totally buy that, but I did start out and ask the students, like, is democracy in crisis? You know, just trying to get, to get their sense. We did sort of an introductory thing. And a number of them, quite a few said yes, but not for the reasons that I sort of thought they would, not because of structure or mechanics and election denialism and coup attempts um, and voter fraud. Anyone that was saying, any of them that were saying democracy was in crisis was more about specific policies like we're not doing enough to help low-income people we're not doing enough for health care and so i was having all these conversations about structure and mechanics and the existence you know the future of our republic and they were just focused on policy so i don't know again it might it might be whether it's just social media or or cable news but focusing on the mechanics of democracy wasn't a top priority and the kids weren't particularly negative about that Kevin or Don, any thoughts on this? Nope, it hasn't come up. I, I was going to say when, when Thompson, the short answer is no. I, I, I kind of smiled and had the exact same thought in my mind. And no student has ever come up to me and asked me about, you know, if I should be concerned that we're using Dominion-based voting systems or something <laughs> like that. Uh, even though that's in the news cycle, right? If you pay attention to political news, these stories have come up in the last two years. Um, really, most kids that I work with in, in all the levels of the government classes I teach just want to know about how do I register to vote and what's on the ballot? What are the issues? Who are the candidates? Like They, they want to know the same kind of basic things that you need to know to be able to cast an educated vote in the system. And um, very few, if none, really have asked about those fine intricacies, which have been in the news cycle and I'm sure might be getting discussed at, in, in some of their homes with their families as they're watching these stories unfold. Any proposals or other initiatives or results across the country or in our own state that maybe seemed interesting to you uh, when you saw them? I would say that the thing, I, I don't know if this is a result, so I should probably start and preface my, my response here with this. The thing I am most interested because of this election cycle is what's going to happen to the Republican Party now. And the fragmentation of this party that was clearly shown in my opinion in this election between the the, the you know the, the president trump end of the party and the non-trump republicans and 
people who are more independent but couldn't support some of the candidates that were chosen from the from the Republican Party. Where do you go from here? How do you rally together as a group with two years before this next presidential cycle and and, and planning to take on a president who, by all indications, seems to want to run for reelection and might be buoyed to run for reelection by this particular result pattern in the midterms? What's the party going to do? Are they going to go with the Ron DeSantis, you know, model and from Florida and try and use that and push that forward. You know, President Trump may or may not announce next week a, another run at the presidency. And how quickly will we see party members get on board with that? Not to belabor the point, but I, I am very, very intrigued to see what happens now to a, a party that had big expectations that were not fulfilled by the outcome of this election. I was going to reply with almost the same thing. I think seeing what the response is moving forward to Trump and the fact that a lot of his handpicked candidates did not win. Um, and so, you know, the MAGA crowd didn't have quite the success that certainly they were hoping. But, you know, maybe this will be the pivot point where the Republican Party is able to move beyond Trump. But at the same time, like there have been a lot of pivot points, you know, two impeachments, an insurrection, two popular vote losses. Like if people haven't pivoted away from Trump yet, I'm not sure that the results from Tuesday are going to be the, you know, the final blow, but it might. And, you know, maybe DeSantis is the future, but that all that remains to be seen. The thing that I'm interested in is what happens with Trump, because what this election said to me is the Republicans chose a lot of outsiders kind of that fit the mold, either in popularity or attractiveness or whatever, to say, hey, here's our Trump of Pennsylvania, or here's our Trump of Michigan or Georgia, somebody that's good looking or popular or appealing in some race, and none of them are Trump. They can't grain the groundswell of support that Trump can. And I'll give the credit to Trump for that. He gets a lot of people out, and that doesn't seem to be a method that's easily replica replicated by other candidates. And at the same time, while we can definitely wonder, you know, what's how does the Republican Party move forward on this? Is it safe to say that at this point, the battleground states of Florida and Ohio are now kind of firmly Republican states? It seems like Democrats did not do well in either place. Those are traditionally in a presidential race, kind of big toss up states. I, I mean, did the Democrats even try to be competitive there anymore? I think the Democrats can certainly try. Um, I'm not sure. I'm thinking about like the, the governor of Florida race, for example. And, uh, you know, not only did DeSantis win that race, but he won it overwhelmingly. And 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 I thought pretty impressively, Be better than I thought he was going to do as an outsider who doesn't probably follow the day to day mechanics of Florida elections and politics that closely. With that said, if it was more of a, a race where you didn't have a four, an incumbent that's been there for four years, that's well known, who's getting a national profile, do I think it would have been a closer contest between the Republican and Democratic candidates? I do. But if you just simply look at trends, right, in Ohio and Florida, they are trending Republican. They have been. They have been since the year 2000. And they're getting more and more conservative for different reasons. And... I wouldn't tell the Democratic Party to give up hope there. I think the right Democrats could have success, but I think it's going to be a lot more challenging going forward in those two states. And I think that 
the the days of calling those two states swing states are probably done. Maybe Florida can hang around there a little bit, but Ohio, I mean, just looking at the last three election cycles, I don't really consider that a swing state anymore. If I was running for office, I wouldn't even take the electoral votes from Ohio. That's a trash state. I don't even want them. <laughs> I think the 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 like Kevin was saying, the the way that DeSantis won and the margin that he won by, especially sort of going against the rest of the trends where there was the red wave in Florida ish, certainly more so than there was in other parts. So that does not bode well for you know, Democrats keeping it close there. I, I think the days of the 537 votes in 2000 that decided the, the election in Florida, those are probably gone. Well, it just it makes it interesting for your presidential map. And obviously, lots of states are up in play, but just sort of those for the least the last 20 years, I feel like were the historical battlegrounds. Also, Texas, which Democrats for the last 10 years have told us it's just one more election cycle away from, uh, you know, going blue. Have they kind of just slam dunked that to say, no, this is also a very firm, uh, firmly red state. Greg Abbott uh, won handily in his reelection against sort of always running for something beta O'Rourke uh, candidacy. Two things here. One, I hope Florida does come competitive because 17,000 people voted for the starting quarterback of the Miami Dolphins to be senator. (laughs) And if that was the difference in election, I would just love that. That would be fantastic, even if it didn't go the way that I wanted. You're speaking of Tua? Yes, Tua got 17,000 votes. 0.2% of the population. That's a chunk. (laughs) Secondly, um, I am irritated with the Democratic Party because they seem to be entrenched in this idea that Hispanic people have to vote Democrat. And they seem to be very irritated when they don't. Like It doesn't necessarily mean just because one demographic or racial group is likely to vote demographic for whatever reasons that they have to, or they seem betrayed by the fact that Hispanics are not voting for Democrats. Hispanic people can vote for whomever they want. Many of them are very religious. Maybe that fits the Republican Party. I just hate this. Like, we're taking for granted. We got more Mexican people. Thus, we should be good. Like, no, they, they're they a diverse group of people that can vote whomever they want. This idea that just they are guaranteed to vote Democratic, I think, is silly and maybe even a little racist. And I'm really glad that Don brought that up, because when you, when you look at Florida and Texas, and one reason why they're still red states, essentially, is I, I think that that Hispanic vote is not what people perceive it's going to be. And I'd be curious to hear Professor Amito's thoughts on this and what he's read or seen, because everything that I have seen lately is that the expectation, as Don mentioned, would be that our Hispanic voters are going to be more more likely Democrats, yet they haven't really trended that way. They did in a couple election cycles, but more recently, they've kind of trended more Republican, and and especially in these close border states, which is somewhat surprising, given the focus on immigration policies that have been the news so much the last couple cycles. So, Tom, what's what's your takeaway on uh, where the the Hispanic voter allegiance seems to be within the parties? Sure. That phenomenon has been getting a lot of attention. I, I look back to I think it was in 2010, there was a book that came out called The Emerging Democratic Majority. And the, the basic theme, it wasn't quite this simple, but the basic theme was the changing demographics are really going to put the Democratic Party in a good position to to have these solid lasting majorities. And it, that is the sort of the trending, uh, the, the youth of the population, the rise of Hispanic voters and 
And so that would really put Democrats in a position to be successful. And I mean, as soon as as early as I think the book came out in 2008 and as early as 2010, when Democrats lost a ton of seats, um, it was clear that, OK, it's not going to be this simple. And so I think a lot of it has to do with the the cultural liberalism or conservatism that a lot of the Hispanic voters, while the Democratic Party speaks to them in a lot of ways, you know, sort of historically civil rights and supports for unions and those types of things, as the, the Democratic Party has moved a bit to the left and sort of that, that cultural liberalism has become more prominent than those more religious or more culturally conservative Hispanic voters are like, ah, you know, Democrats speak to me in some things, but not others. And I don't have to be locked into this. And so that really opens the door for Republicans to make some gains. A, a question is, is how much? I mean, still, overwhelmingly, Hispanic voters support the Democratic Party. It is, the, you know, the most recent results show that it is less than it used to be. Whether we're seeing a, you know, dramatic and lasting shift to the Republicans, of course, that remains to be seen. But it, it's it's undeniable and certainly something that Republicans are feeling very good about and Democrats are very concerned about. And Tom, one more thing to kind of pick your brain on and, and for everybody, really, you know, back in 2016, I think a lot of political scientists were surprised when we saw that voters with high school education or, or less voted Republican by a majority, you know, over a majority voted Republican, which was abnormal compared to many, many previous cycles. And, you know, suburban voters and college educated voters voted more Democratic than they had previously. And those trends so far from what I've seen in, this, in the midterm data and from 2020 uh, uh, still appear to be the way things are going. So would you expect that 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 shift in which party gets support based on people's education level is likely to continue moving forward? I think so. That has really become sort of a, a very clear split, the college educated versus non-college educated, with non-college educated leaning much, much more towards Republicans, more so than used to. I mean, that used to be you know, the higher education, the more likely to be conservative and vote Republican. But that is definitely changing. And I don't know how much of that is, you know, the, the Trump appeal, his populist appeal that's firing up those non-educated voters. And it's generally non-educated white voters where we really see that shift. Um, so I feel like I say this over and over, but how long, how lasting that is remains to be seen, but it's very pronounced lately. I'm not surprised by this because people don't vote by their economic interests. And those people that are high income and highly educated are likely to vote for candidates that will increase their taxes and punish them economically. And low income individuals are likely to vote for conservatives that are not going to give them the benefits that they really need. And it's not necessarily about economic interests. It's about how they identify with themselves and the gut feeling that they have for the candidates and how they feel on the social issues that seems to have the greater power when making these decisions. It's your boy, Brian Kaplan, with the myth of the rational voter. Yes, they are not rational. No, indeed. Well, speaking of uh, Trump and Biden, of course, right after the election ends, the headlines for the 2024 presidential election started. There was already discussion if Trump is going to announce. Both candidates are just super old if we assume Trump and Biden are going to run again. Biden will be basically 82 if he were to run again, and I believe Trump would be 78. Do you guys think 
those are the two people that are um, the candidates for both the Republican and the Democratic Party in two years? Or do you think Biden's going to have to step aside and and maybe either Trump decides it's not worth it to run again? Or do you think he gets surpassed by somebody else? Tua! Tua! <laughs> Hawaiians are like 1-0 as major candidates in presidential elections. Why can't Tua do it? I think, uh, Zach, in terms of your question, that you would have to certainly give the the edge to both of them if they choose to run. And for President Biden, I, I can't say that I feel confident that there is a willing Democrat right now ready to throw their name into the ring and take on the sitting president, even though a lot of people seem to have concerns, not just with the age, but you know, some of the challenges so far that the, the president's had to deal with and the ability to fix some of the economic issues. It, it seems like there should be somebody saying we could do maybe better than what we've done so far, yet I haven't seen it. I don't, I don't know who wants to do that. I think they're waiting to see if the president decides to run for re-election or not. And if he doesn't, then you'll see this sort of quick groundswell of names being thrown out there as, as potential replacements, um, probably starting with Vice President Harris first. On the Republican side, all signs point to Trump. And I just wonder if this election that we saw here last week did enough damage to the brand, if you will, to stop what I thought would have been a pretty easy you know, sale process for President Trump to get that nomination again. I still feel like he's got to be a betting favorite there, but there, there might be some sort of wrinkles in the armor now. To me, it just seems like, and again, it seems like Don's smoke-filled rooms are happening on the Democratic side and people are meeting and maybe trying to convince Biden maybe to step aside because it just seems like a younger, more vibrant candidate would just be so helpful. And I, I mean, you know, you've got this Gavin Newsom guy out in California. He seems sort of interesting. Also, what about Governor Whitmer? Any chance we start seeing her name floated out in the next month or two? Here's a, a young woman who can can kind of speak to sort of middle America. Any chance we could see them maybe coming up as, as potential candidates? I have heard Whitmer's name come up quite a bit. I have no idea where she's at in terms of thinking about that. People will always say, hey, I'm committed. I just won a four-year term. I'm committed to serving out that term. But, of course, that's fungible. But I haven't heard anything from her, but she certainly seems to be an appealing candidate as a rising star in the Democratic Party. I think part of the problem on the Democratic side is there's this sort of just historical deference to the, to the elder statesmen of the party and a, a reluctance to challenge that. And so if Biden doesn't on his own decide not to run, the type of person that would challenge an incumbent president in a Democratic primary would have to be, you know, that kind of outsider risk taker that would be willing to do that. And I think people might be nervous about that type of candidate, particularly if the opponent is Trump. What really worked to Biden's advantage was, hey, he might not be the most exciting. He might not be, you know, the most you know, energetic candidate, but he seems solid enough to be able to win against chaos. And so for someone to push that aside, I think would have to be somewhat of a chaos candidate. And then that might not be as appealing to Democratic voters, even if it is from a policy standpoint or just from an interest standpoint. They'll say, can someone like this actually beat 
Trump. So I think it's a really tough spot for Democrats unless Biden himself decides not to run. Then I think that opens up the field um, and would be the best case scenario. Is that our most recent example of that? Teddy Kennedy challenging Jimmy Carter? Am I remembering correctly? I think that that might be at least, you know, significant challenge. That might be the the last one. I think one interesting add-on to Tom's point would be what the, the, the flip side of that, right? What if Trump, like the hypothetical world where President Trump does not run for the nomination, surprises America and says, you know what, I'm I'm out. And now you've got this sort of, yeah, I don't know, it's Tom Cotton or, or Ron DeSantis or these sort of younger up and coming Republicans taking on the 82 year old Joe Biden. Glenn Youngkin. Glenn, Glenn Youngkin. There you go. How's that going to look in debates when I'm just saying if the point Tom makes, I think, is a really good one that Biden was this more kind of stable you know, you know what you're getting choice to, to the volatility of, of the Trump administration. Now, if that was if it wasn't Trump versus Biden, but it was a younger up and coming Republican taking on 82 year old Joe Biden. I know exactly how the campaign advertising is going to go. And the impact of what that would look like, I think, politically could be very interesting and and difficult, I think, for Democrats in that way. I think more difficult than having to go up against Trump again, which to me is less difficult, frankly, in 2024 and trying to to get your electoral math to work out the right way. It it seems like a weird game of uh, game theory. If you have two old candidates, then they both kind of neutralize each other and maybe both parties like that matchup. But yet if one candidate isn't there and you have one young person versus an old candidate, I just feel like America maybe is ready for just somebody who looks like they're alive and um, is vibrant, has all their mental faculties, either side. I mean, DeSantis seems like a very hungry young guy who's ambitious that I think could appeal to a lot of people just if they're on TV. I don't know. It would be very interesting to kind of see how this shakes out. I think what needs to happen is Biden and Trump need to sit down over a nice meal and decide for the good of the country that they're both going to step aside and leave the field wide open for the future. I could see that happening. (laughs) (laughs) Not. Truly, I guess it will just be very interesting to kind of obviously watch the next year or two, although I was already dreading the fact that what starting in January or February, everybody's going to start announcing that they want to run for president. And then we just have to like listen to presidential primary news for the next two years, basically. That'll be a long time. I I just want the optics of a John Fetterman, Donald Trump debate. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it will be interesting to watch it. We'll obviously have to monitor it. Uh, do any of you guys have any other final thoughts or just uh, things you want to comment on uh, with the election? I think my still, I mentioned this earlier, but my strongest takeaway is that we had an election. It ran smoothly. There are winners and losers. And the, the people that are coming out on the losing end, for, for the most part across the board, are saying, well done, nice race, I'm out. And I wasn't sure that that was going to be the case. And there were times where it certainly didn't seem like there would be a whole lot of concessions. And uh, so I think that is definitely a win for the system. My big takeaway is that Tom's extremely low expectations have been satisfied. And that is somehow remarkable. (laughs) I think we touched upon this a little bit, but maybe my biggest 
surprise so far is that we don't have official control of the House of Representatives by somebody yet. And while we comment, cert, commented certainly on how the red wave didn't really happen, I figured by now Republicans get it, be at 218. We might not be waiting on every single district or have the results from every single district, but I'm surprised that we are four days now out from election night and we're still with neither party at 218 seats in the House. And um, that wasn't expected to be close, if you will, like the Senate has been, which we knew was going to be close. I, I'm, I'm very surprised that there isn't a, a lot more discussion about Speaker McCarthy, et cetera, going on currently. Well, I guess I'll, I'll ask one final question then. I still have lots of friends that claim they hate both parties and they hate everything about Republicans and Democrats, and they want a third party. Any chance in the next two years we finally see the long-awaited third political party in America that seems to solve everybody's problems? No. No. With a caveat. I'd say, <laughs> I would say no unless the system has changed in some way. So much about our electoral process, single-member districts, winner-take-all, makes it so difficult for a third party, even one that does sort of unprecedentedly well, in order to beat both of the two major parties. It is, while not impossible, it is so unlikely so unless we make adjustments to the system, I don't think we're going to see a third party win. Um, one of my favorite political scientists, Lee Drutman, is part of an organization called Fix Our House. And their whole plan is to try and move towards multi-member districts instead of single-member districts in Congress. Uh, and I think it would really take reforms, not necessarily just that one, but reforms like that uh, before we see any kind of third party success. I'm going to amend my statement. I'm going to say that if the Republicans choose DeSantos or somebody else and Trump runs as a uh, bull moose candidate, then you get three parties and that would be a huge win for Democrats. So not really a third party. Well, that's an interesting idea, Don. That that seems like that is possible. And Don just said exactly what I wanted to say. That's kind of Sorry. the only third. No, you're, you're fine because that's the only avenue to like a legit third party getting votes in this upcoming election cycle as if like there was this sort of mega party that forms because maybe Trump doesn't win the Republican nomination. And th then it would serve as you guys know from history, a, a splinter role. It would take a, a large chunk of your Republican base and split it in two and would make the pathway for a Democrat and the Democratic Party have success probably very, very, very easy. So uh, I can't say like, like Don and Tom said, I can't, I don't see an, another third party alternative in the near future. Teddy Roosevelt, after he lost that bull moose party election, he then immediately headed down and explored the river of doubt down, down in South America. If Trump were to lose, do you think he would go on a large uh, expedition to go and explore a river in the Amazon? He'll explore golf courses all over the world and eat lots of steaks. Well, this has been very educational, and I really appreciate Tom and Kevin for joining us. Don, it's always been a pleasure there. Uh, thank you so much, guys, for coming and sharing your expertise. Right on. Have a good one. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Zach and Don. Don, it's been a pleasure talking with you this week. I look forward to talking with you next week. Right on, man. Good times.